All right. Mark 11, 1 to 11 says this. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at, the door, at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. You are the Word. The Word was with God in the beginning, and in the beginning the Word was God. You're the Word, Lord Jesus. And you speak to us today from this text, as you do so faithfully every week. And so God, I pray for our hearts right now, um, and my heart, Lord, that you would encourage us by your Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus in every circumstance. God, you know what lies ahead of us. You've seen what's gone behind us. And you are with us. And so, God, we rest in your word that has once been spoken and is speaking still to our hearts in our presence this very morning. So, God, we ask that you look on your servant this morning and speak your words. They not be my words, but be your words, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this passage is usually a passage we might be speaking about on Palm Sunday, which is like whatever, weeks away, eight weeks away, or whatever it is, um, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but in Mark, we have the, the opportunity to be in the Passion Week for actually nine weeks or ten weeks or whatever it is of passages. So from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 16, that's a third of the entire book of Mark, we're on the last week of Jesus' life in terms of Mark's reflection and proclamation of what Jesus' life is about. Okay, so starting here, we're, we're, we got to start here, and then for the next 10 weeks, just pretend it's Easter, okay? It's going to be Easter for the next two months, okay? So, yeah, Hattie? That's a great idea, but we can't afford it, so no. <laughs> no, no, we can't afford that either. Stop, stop it, stop. Down in front, goodness. All right, so anyway, just pretend... It's Easter for the next, next two months. Um, again, th- this is a familiar passage to you, and I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time in the first 10 verses. I'm actually going to spend most of my time on verse 11. But before we get there, I'm going to walk through verses 1 to 10 uh, and just kind of commentary briefly on 1 to 10, talk about verse 11, uh, and then kind of uh, go from there with what I feel like the Lord is trying to tell us today. So um, verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent his two disciples. So, so what's happening here is they were just in Jericho, okay? Now they're headed toward Jerusalem. You heard Luke say they were going up to Jerusalem, so just a little bit of geography lesson for you. Uh, Jerusalem as a city is set higher than the area around it, so they, are going, they literally are going up to. They're physically going up to, not like north, but, you know, altitude up, Okay. They're going up to Jerusalem from Jericho. 
But when you get to Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem on this uh, east side as which they're approaching, is the Mount of Olives, okay? And this mountain is on the east side of Jerusalem. As you get to the top of this, you start going down into Jerusalem, okay? Um, and so, you know, the reason why Mark points out things as he does is for a purpose. He doesn't actually say a lot of specific names or specific places. So when he gives you a specific name or a specific place, he's doing it because he was like, oh, yeah, that's important. I need to tell you that, okay? So, yeah, they pass by uh, Bethphage and, and Bethany. Bethany is important because for the rest of his time uh, during the, the Passover week, this is his lodging point. And theoretically, potentially, he's gotten to Jerusalem and spends months before the Passover, or before the last week of his life, and is, is going back and forth between Bethany. So there's some, there's some like timeline stuff that's debatable, okay, about how things fall here. But in Mark's gospel, his time is spent going between Jerusalem and Bethany, okay? That's where they're lodging. That's where they're staying. At the end of this passage, you'll see them at the end of verse 11, they go back to Bethany to lodge, okay? So he's not staying inside the city. He's retreating to Bethany. That's why Mark pulls it out as they're, as they're coming in. Um, the Mount of Olives is important, and we'll get into it some next week, uh, because the prophecies about the Messiah uh, talk about the Mount of Olives itself actually being split open, which we'll talk about that again uh, some more next week. So come back for that. That'll be fun. Um, so they're going into Jerusalem. As they go up to Jerusalem, they get to the crest of the hill, and now they're going to start going down toward Jerusalem. Before you get to Jerusalem, verse 2, he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say to them, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Okay? So just, you know, sometimes this passage is gone, Oh, how did Jesus know that there was a colt there? It's like he had this prophetic vision that there was a colt there in that city, um, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, basically, like, we know he's done ministry in Jerusalem on an ongoing basis, either like a couple years before um, or like in the, months prior, in the months prior to him coming down into Jerusalem in this way, okay? So, again, last week we were coming out of Jericho. There is a theory that between last week and today in the story, there are months of time in which Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem and going in and out. And now Mark is picking up the story again at him coming into Jerusalem. So just like, you know, set aside the fact that Jesus is like, oh, there's, there's a cult over there randomly. You know, he actually very likely saw the cult going in and out. Like he actually had human knowledge, not necessarily God knowledge of the cult being there. And so he kind of like makes some of those things mystical or whatever. But like he actually might have known the cult was there and decided, okay, we're going to, hey, remember that cult? You're going to see it in the front. Just... If anybody sees it, it's asks you who needs it, just say the Lord needs it. And again, they, they would know who the Lord is because the Lord has been teaching, right? And so it's not as like, you know, as, as uh, mystical as we might think it to be. It might just be a matter of circumstances. They know who the Lord is and he actually saw it, okay? So he says, hey, go to that village that's in front of you. There's a cult there. If anybody says, hey, why are you taking that? Just tell them the Lord needs it, and they will acquiesce, basically. Okay, cool. Like the Lord. Yeah, let's do this, you know? Um, so they go into the village, and basically, verses 4 to 6 is, it was as they said it was, right? <laughs> and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Like, the colt. You know, the one that's never been ridden on. The one that's sitting outside of our village waiting for, you know, the Messiah. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. So Jesus said, hey, this is going to happen. It happened. Verses 4 to 6, it happened, right? Uh, pretty straightforward. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Um. There's a lot of cloaks and, and palms and branches and stuff in this passage, okay? And there's, there's probably, a, there probably is, I know there is, a lot of depth and cultural background to the meaning of these things. I'm not going to belabor that too much, but I do want to point out um, a couple things. First, your cloak in this time is your wallet, okay? It's, your, it's actually your, your, your monetary life, Okay? You're, like, imagine carrying the title to your car, 
and the deed for your house and all the cash you have and, you know, the change or whatever, that's all on your person. That's on your cloak. You didn't have like a safe you stored that in in your house. That was, you were wearing it to your body, okay? So if you're removing your cloak and putting it on something or laying it down, you're saying, it's yours. I give it to you. I'm putting it down before you. And just to take away like maybe the holiness of this picture, you know, there's a crowd that's going to do the same thing. They lay their cloaks on the ground. We are not here to judge the motive of the person laying their cloak down. Because you could lay your cloak down for a lot of things, okay? You, you could lay your cloak down for a lot of reasons, all right? And so don't just like, look, oh, look, they laid their cloak down before Jesus. They must be followers of Christ. Because that's not necessarily what this passage is talking about. So just know the, the culturally, they're saying, I'm laying my cloak down. That's, that's my possessions. I'm putting it on here. And the disciples are saying, okay, we need something for Jesus to sit on this this cult, we're going to put our cloaks here. I mean, we're his already. So like, here, Lord, sit on our cloaks. So Jesus sits on, on the cloaks um, on this cult. Um, so Jesus sat on, and, and then verse, uh, verse 8, it goes on and says, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Yeah, so Mark takes the approach of taking just random, you know, just indiscriminate, I guess, leafy branches, whereas in John, we hear palm fronds being uh, shared, which is like part of the celebration of booths. Um, and so there's no reason that these can't like be harmonized. Uh, it's just that this is what Mark is portraying to us. So don't get like worried about, there's not palms here. There's palms there. It's just not what Mark picked up on, okay? Um, so many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. In verse eight. And then verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Um, usually when I read this passage, I think, man, like, what a contrast, right, between all these people who got it. You know, they, they, they got it. They, they knew that was the Messiah. They knew this was Jesus, the coming king, and they were screaming, Hosanna, God save us. And then just seven days later, they're crucifying him. And I was always kind of struck by that contrast, right? But I hadn't really considered the words, which is important to do. So, as I was slowing down studying this this week, it says, Hosanna, right? God save us. It's a general plea to God to save us, right? It's good. It's a good thing to cry out, right? But remember, what I'm trying to wrestle with is, do these people get that Jesus is the coming Messiah that they need to place their eternal hope in? Do they get it? And in the past, I thought, well, they got it, and then they lost it, you know? And what I'm going to tell you today is that I don't think they ever had it. I don't think they ever got it. First, he says, first they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's not untrue, okay? Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. It's just not all the way true because he is the Lord, Right? Not blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Lord. He's the Lord coming down here. They don't see that yet. They're just saying, this is the guy that's coming to save us from Roman oppression again. This is the perspective still. Even as they say the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they're still thinking about here and now, the temporal things that they trust in. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Our God is going to save us from Roman oppression, right? Like that's what we actually ought to be hearing in the background. And think about the message of Jesus over the entirety of Mark. Anybody? What's his message? Hattie, all three. The kingdom of, the kingdom is here. Which kingdom? 
The kingdom of God, yes. The kingdom of God is here, okay? But they're saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Truish. <laughs> right? Jesus is the son of David, right? Like, as we're talking about prophecy and who his identity is, he's the descendant of David. But before David was, he was. He is the Lord before David. This is not our father David's kingdom. This is the Lord's kingdom that is coming in, in front of these crowds' faces and cheers and cries for God's salvation. And they actually don't get it still. Like, I didn't realize how much they didn't get it until I saw they actually aren't saying the right thing. They're not saying, blessed is the Lord. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. True, but not totally there. Blessed is the kingdom of God. No, they're saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Father, uh, in, sorry, is the coming kingdom of our father, David which is a great cultural memory for them because that's when they were unified as a country and they controlled Judea and Israel as one united kingdom of people, of tribes, okay? And so they were hoping for the restoration of their worldly kingdom that their father David established. Okay, so then the thing I've been wrestling with all week long is what do you do with this procession that ends with verse 11? Okay? Like, think of, think of like, well, yesterday, right? Like, Gasparilla. This huge, vibrant parade of whatever, okay? Like, I, listen... I love our beaches, okay? I love our area. It's beautiful. There's beautiful nature here. God has made a beautiful place. I even, you know, I will say this. I, I love watching Tampa Bay Bucks football. I love being part of that. Like Bucks, that's great. We go Bucks. You know what? But I'm not about to sit around celebrating piracy. Sorry if that offends anybody in Tampa Bay, but. I just can't really get around it, you know? But, like, think of all the pomp and circumstance and all the things that are happening to just have a parade, right? Okay, that's what was happening. That level of, like, grandeur, but messianic, <laughs> okay? And then it ends in verse 11. I, the thing I've, been, I've actually been, was looking intently in commentaries for, like, what was Jesus supposed to do in this moment? Like, how was the procession supposed to end? Like, in the Gasparilla Parade, what's supposed to happen is the fictitious pirates are supposed to go to the mayor's office in Tampa and take the keys of the city. Yay! <laughs> Congratulations, you have fake keys to the city that open no door. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's fun. Um, <laughs> It's all great. Um, so, like, what was he supposed to do as their coming Messiah that's being celebrated? Come in the name of the Lord. What is he supposed to do, you know? Because the passage ends with him doing this. I, I couldn't find an answer, just so you know. I, I looked at a, a handful of commentaries I have access to. I couldn't find, like, a question, someone answering, well, the expectation of this processional was him to march into the town square and declare, I am the Lord, the king of this city. I don't know what he was supposed to do, okay? But it says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He marches in a majestic processional into the city, walks into the temple, looks around. You might have kept caught us from the past couple weeks pointing out that Mark is using this word, looks around. He's looking to see. He's reading the room and going, looks around and saying, okay, I'm going. 
I've got to go back to my disciples now. And so the thing I've been wrestling with all week long is, what do we do with that? What was he thinking as he's looking around at the temple after what has just happened? Um, I don't want to take away from all the symbolic nature of what happened with Jesus coming in on the processional because it, it actually is a lot there. Um, like, for instance, it's, it's said that as you come into Jerusalem down this hill, you're supposed to dismount your conveyance and walk it into the city as a reverence to the Lord. Okay? You're supposed to get, off of, get out of your vehicle okay, and roll it down the hill so to speak, right? So you get off your donkey and walk it in. Off your horse, walk it in, okay? So that's what you're supposed to do as you crest the hill and come down to Jerusalem out of reverence for God and the chosen city, that's what you should do. He didn't do that. He called a donkey for him to sit on and ride in. Also, he didn't call a horse, okay? He didn't call a war horse to ride into. He called a donkey, okay? Just picture the distinction between a tank and a limousine, okay? A horse is a tank, and a limousine is a donkey, okay? When you ride into a city on the limousine, you are the owner of that city. He is not worried about anybody attacking him. He is saying, this is my city. He's accepting the title of the one they expect. They just don't know what they're expecting, They think they're expecting this earthly kingdom that he is bringing to usher into them to throw off the oppression of uh, of Rome and establish the new united Israel. They totally miss the point of his presence. So the the march down is, is full of significance in terms of him accepting the role of Messiah and entering in in the way he does. But again, what I want to walk through with the rest of our time is just sit with Jesus in the temple and think about what in the world was going through his head as he gets to the temple and it's just quiet, barren, and nothing's happening and it's too late. We know from uh, other Gospels and from what we can safely assume about Jesus' life as a Jewish man uh, that this is far from his first trip to the temple, right? Jesus' knowledge of the temple is probably vast. We know from other Gospels that he went as a child. He was in his temple, you know, learning when his mom and dad lost him there, right? Fun. Good, Good job, parents. It's okay. You're good to lose your kids. Jesus was lost by his parents, so, you know, don't feel alone. If he did, um, this is far from his last trip to the temple. It's even likely that he's done ministry in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem prior to this moment. Okay, Even though we haven't seen that yet in Mark, we shouldn't assume that that hasn't happened. It's just literally Mark is trying to portray the importance of the temple in his outlay of his gospel. Okay, He's intentionally doing this. Um, however, so for Mark's gospel, this is the first mention of the temple. We haven't use the word temple in all of chapter 1 to 10. Zero times, okay? Yeah, Hattie can witness to that. I told her that last night. Um, and so from, from here on, there are 12 times that the word temple is used between chapters 11 to 16, which, I mean, circumstantially, they are in Jerusalem, so it makes sense. They're, okay, but still, Mark has said, now 12 times in the next five chapters, he's going to use the word temple on nine different occasions, okay? So nine different events involve the temple, reference to the temple, activity in the temple, uh, being in the temple, okay? So it's clear from Mark's gospel that he wants to tell us something about the temple, wants us to reflect on why Jesus would go look around in the temple and consider it. Um, In John's gospel, it says uh, that it had taken 46 years to build the, the current temple that we're speaking of, Herod's temple, uh, until that day. And it actually continued being finished until 64 AD. I find that date pretty interesting 
because uh, Mark's gospel, our best dating of Mark's gospel is from 64 to 65 AD. Okay, the completion of the temple is around the time Mark is sending his gospel back to the city of Rome. And as you might know, five years later, Rome destroys the temple. Okay, so the significance of the temple is its physical presence is there, right? Okay, so just a brief, like... <laughs> um, just a brief... Uh, visual for you to see. Here's uh, Herod's temple. Can you give me the picture of Herod's temple there, Jason? Awesome. So this is Herod's second temple. Uh, what you can see here on both sides of the temple proper, which is in the middle, you've got the temple proper uh, with, in front of it is uh, the women's courtyard and the gate of Nicanor and the men's courtyard is... Uh, up closer to the temple there. I don't know if it's labeled. Um, so that center section is the temple proper where only if you were a Jew, you could go there. Um, and if as a Jewish woman, you could only go to the area that's number nine in the front of it there. Um, and you can see like a small, a small, very short gate, uh, very short wall or fence in front around the whole thing. And posted at every one of those little like small gates is a notice in, in every language of the time to say, if you're not a Jew, it's punishable by death if you go past this point. So don't go past this point or we're going to kill you, basically. Right? And so then everything surrounding that is where you can be as a Gentile or a Jew. It's called the Gentiles' courtyard on both sides. Uh, Size-wise, we were talking about it on Thursday, it's like 20 football fields stacked together, like the Gentiles' courtyard portion. So it's not small. It's kind of huge. Um, okay, and so this is Herod's temple. It's ornate, beautiful, you know, constructed, who knows with what intentions, okay? Remember, it is Herod's temple, not like, okay. Now, just compare this to Solomon's temple that the Lord said, Solomon, you can build a temple. The Lord literally said, you can build this temple. The Lord gave permission to Solomon to build this temple. Now, compare Herod's temple there on the right, to Solomon's temple, there on the left. Um, and you will know that this is, this is just comparing the inside section of Herod's temple to Solomon's temple. It's a little bit smaller. And it itself was actually pretty big and, and beautiful. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of, that's the place we're talking about, all right? Um, Again, so, so this question is, is ringing to me as you're looking at these places. So Jesus goes through this processional. He's in, in, in all of his comprehension and awareness has done what he needs to do. And the motives of the hearts of the people are, are happening. And they, they think that he's coming to restore their, uh, you know, their, their uh, sovereignty as a, a nation and, and take up the kingdom of their father, David. Um, and he goes into this temple, Herod's temple, and just looks around. And you have to think what's going through his head is, man, what this temple was supposed to be about. What was this temple supposed to be about? Because, yeah, it's beautiful, and the people should be proud of how beautiful and gorgeous the temple is, is Herod's temple. But you know what? It doesn't matter. The temple is, is about that, that place where God resides. It's not about being so ornate that it takes a hundred years to build it to impress the world around you about how big and, and prominent it is. Jesus looks at this temple and thinks, I think, he thinks, so grace Lord. I think he has to be thinking, man, what was this temple supposed to be? And what has it become? Just to rewind, I want to talk to us a bit about, and this is where my notes are a little scattered, so I'm sorry. Um, I want to talk about the, what this temple is supposed to be. So, to rewind the story of Israel, God called Abram 
to go to a place he would show him in Canaan. I promise I'll be as quick with this as possible. And Abram became Abraham. And Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph. And Joseph was given favor in Egypt. For 400 years, they grew into a massive, millions-strong nation of people within a nation. So much so that they were detested by Egypt and turned into slaves over the course of their time. For 400 years, enslaved. Until Moses, Exodus 3, 3 to 10, comes and says, I will turn aside from this great sight. Oh, sorry, sorry. Until Moses comes and attempts to save his people. Right? He attempts to save them from their oppressors by murdering an Egyptian who was harassing an Israelite. And the Israelites are like, why are you bringing trouble on us? We're not trying to cause a mess here. And they kick him out. And he leaves. So Moses, thinking that he was doing the will of God, took things in his own hands and caused a mess. And then was exiled for 40 years. And after 40 years, he's wandering in the wilderness. And then Exodus 3 <laughs> Verse 3 to 10, God shows up to him because he had a plan for him. He said, I, and he's walking in the, in the wilderness, and, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush has not burned, because he's seeing a burning bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take off your sandal, take off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid, not to, afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." God remembered a promise he had made to Abraham to prepare a place for God to reside on earth and commune with them. And he called Moses to save his people out of Egypt where they were oppressed, to again create a dwelling place for God. And so there are a handful of verses I want to hit you with from the Old Testament that remind us what the temple is supposed to be. As a people, they should have been seeing that this place is holy ground. Exodus 29, 45 to 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Leviticus 26, 11 to 13. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you to walk erect. Deuteronomy 12, 1-14. These are the statutes and rules you shall be careful to do in the land of the Lord of uh, Lord the God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. You should surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire, and shall chop down their carved images of gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name, and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, your vow offerings and free will offerings, your firstborn from your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to, the, to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own, in his own eyes. 
For you have not come, have not as yet come to the rest and the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution that you present, and your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there shall your shall you offer your burnt offerings, and there shall you do all that I am commanding you. Deuteronomy 33, 26 to 29. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, which is like a name to say, I have made you righteous, but you're not acting righteous. It's kind of like tongue in cheek, but there's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived into safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemy shall become fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Joel three seventeen. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. In Zechariah 8, 8, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. The place of Jerusalem, the 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 proximity of the temple, okay, it wasn't to be some statue of facade worship to God. It was to be a place where the people of Israel said, you are my God, and I love you, and I give my life to you. I lay down my cloak, not for any benefit that I will receive back, but because I lay it down to you, because you're all I've got. It was to be a dwelling place for the creator of the universe to commune with his chosen people. So again, what is Jesus thinking as he steps in that temple and says, what have you done? You've made this a place that is about image and what is seen on the outside rather than what is on the inside. And I'm sure that Jesus desires the heart of David to break forth in these people, okay? Because as I was looking at the processional, there's one other processional that is like this and that we draw a lot of cultural connection from, and that's from Jehu, Okay, so Jehu was a king, and in a similar way, Jehu rode a donkey into Jerusalem, and they put cloaks before it. And so when we think about the Passover, or think about Palm Sunday, this is like one place where we look for cultural connection. This morning, I was hit by the fact that that's not really the best place to look to see what the heart of Jesus is in this moment. Because yes, they're saying, we want the kingdom of our father David to come forward. And while that's true in some way, it's not really what Jesus is getting at here. What he's getting at is David's joy. Man, David's joy when the Ark of the Covenant came back to Jerusalem. Well, came to Jerusalem for the first time. That's what Jesus is in this tension of, right? His heart for this people is for them to know that God wants to be with you. God wants your heart He wants your life. He wants the whole of it. And he wants to supply you protection and provision at every single step. If you would yield to his kingdom instead of some worldly kingdom you're building in your own flesh. 
He says, I don't want the heart of Jehu. I want the heart of David, who danced undignified before the Ark of the Covenant as it came into Jerusalem. David's joy was this. The Ark had been shoved away for 20 years in a, in a city called Kiriath-Jerim, and I don't really know, like, why, why are we waiting for that? I, I'm not really sure. i gotta got to go back and, like, do better study on that. I told Christy this week, I was like, so many times as I prepare messages, I'm like, there's so much more we need to dig into on this, and so I'm sorry if we missed some details here. But anyway, Ark is there for 20 years in Kiriath-Jerim, and David says, Let's, it's time to go get the Ark, bring it into Jerusalem. It's time for the ark to be in Jerusalem, for it to be in the place where God has chose for us to worship. So he goes to get it, and he makes a, a pretty big mistake. He has the drivers of a cart drive it, like put it on a cart, and, and like cart it, like a cart with wheels, you know, and like pull it with oxen toward the city. Well, that doesn't work for a number of reasons, and we'll find out later. It starts to slip off the cart. And one of the drivers of the cart goes to grab it, thinking that as a man I should catch this very important object uh, to save it from hitting the ground, which is good in one sense, but also not right, which is really hard to grasp. But as he goes to grab it, he touches the ark as a defiled non-Levite, and he dies. (laughs) Okay, He's judged for trying to catch this ark as if he were going to save the Lord. is like the implication. The Lord doesn't need saving. And so David is wrecked. He actually is scared and parks the ark with another man in another city. Obed is his name. And for three months, it's in Obed's house. And word gets back to David that Obed is getting blessed. Like the ark is in his presence and Obed's just like, is, I don't know, like his sheep are magnificently multiplying. I don't know like what's happening, but he's getting blessed so much. That David's like, all right, we got to bring it in. Let's keep that. What did we do wrong last time? So he goes back to them and this time he does the right thing. And instead of having it put on a cart that's driven by the sons of Abinadab, which I don't know like why, I don't know, they weren't the right people. Basically, we know from Numbers 4.15 that the sons of Kohath are supposed to be the ones carrying the ark. They're set-apart Levites. That are Their whole job as a clan of the Levites was to carry the ark. And David, I mean, really kind of like the guy's blood's on his hand in a way because he didn't obey the Lord in how this thing was to be carried. Okay, so David goes and and gets the ark. The Levites, the sons of Kohath, start carrying it in. And it's really cool, actually. I didn't know this was the origin of Six Steps Records, but it actually is. So they take six steps out of the city, and they stop. This is a 10-mile journey of some, of some sort, is my understanding. They take six steps and stop. And after six steps, David, it says, uh, presents an offering to the Lord after six steps. Like, all right, we're, we're committing this journey to you, Lord. We're actually taking a Sabbath from the journey we just started. After six steps, they stopped in their tracks and said, praise the Lord, we love you, we give you our offerings, we bow down before you, we commit this journey to you. And then they proceed. Um, Jason, I think the next two verses are wrong, so don't use 2 Samuel 3.13 or 2 Samuel 3.14 and 15. Uh, Those are wrong. Got me? Cool. (laughs) Yeah, totally wrong story. Um, So as the ark comes in uh, into Jerusalem, what's happening as it comes into Jerusalem is that David is dancing before it. He takes his outer garment, his cloak, off and is just dancing, undignified, before the Ark of the Covenant. Of the, of Ark of the Covenant. And his wife, Michal, is disgusted. She's embarrassed that her husband is so uh, 
flaunting, or not really flaunting, but just so undignified in his worship to the Lord before the Ark of the Covenant. And when he's uh, approached by her about this, he says, I will become more indignified than this. This is the Lord, our God. This is the God who saved me from Goliath, who was tormenting the Philistine, tormenting giant of the Philistines that was holding us captive. Okay, no one would go before him, and I killed him with a rock. Like, what is that about? That wasn't me. That was God. You don't kill giants with one rock, okay? God did it is what happened, okay? And so David says, I'll get more indignified than this. And so he comes in uh, into Jerusalem, and, and after the ark came in, he says this to the prophet Nathan in, in 2 Samuel 7, 2-3. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, do what's in your heart. But then God spoke to Nathan. And he said something that's important. And so I'm going to read it. Again, apologies for all the scripture, but it's really good. 2 Samuel 7, 4 to 10. First, he says this to him. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all, again, this is the Lord speaking to Nathan, his message for David. Okay, catch that? Catch that? Okay. So this is the Lord speaking to David through, through Nathan. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Is, is God concerned about how his house looks? Right? He's content to be moved around in a tabernacle, actually. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, the following, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make, you, make for you a great name, like the name of great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. And then this, Second Samuel seven eleven to 16, he says this, From the point... Uh, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. He should build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of, rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." God says to David, I, I appreciate what you're going to do, but first of all, I'm going to have your son do it. Second of all, I want to do something for you. I'm establishing a house for you forever. Now, was he talking, I'm asking you, was he talking about a physical temple? Nah, he wasn't. Was he talking about a physical temple? No. He's talking about a place to dwell with the Lord. Ezekiel 37, 24 to 28. This is the, the legacy, heritage of David. My servant David shall be king over them. Okay, David's gone at this point. Okay, this is Ezekiel. This is after the children of Israel have been destroyed. They've been taken into captivity in Babylon. Okay? Have, their land is gone, okay? And now Ezekiel is speaking to the people of Israel when they have no land. Okay, so Ezekiel's saying, 
My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will dwell there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is the kingdom that David stands for, okay? The people are crying out for a kingdom they think David represents, which is a kingdom of this earth, which is going to fail. God told David, do I live in houses of cedar? Do I need a temple that's 20 football fields large? No, I don't. I'm good with the tabernacle. If you want to do it, that's fine. I'll let your son do it because you're a man. Anyone move on? But like, I am here to be with you. So I've got two questions for us. To wrap up our time. First is this. What kingdom are we looking for God to establish? What kingdom are we looking for God to establish? Think of I'm Jesus, seated, walking around the temple, looking around, Considering somehow as a man, like it's so hard to like even fathom this conversation, or like digest it at all. How Jesus from eternity past, and then as a human for 30 years leading up to this moment, is looking at the week ahead and standing in the temple and going, What kingdom are you guys serving? And so begs the question to us to to come back to our hearts and go, what kingdom am I here for? Am I here for the kingdom of my father David? Or am I here for the kingdom of God that isn't present in tabernacles built by wood and stone, but is rather, praise be to the blood of Jesus, present in my heart, making a house for himself within me by the power of the Holy Spirit forevermore. So often, too often, my eyes and my heart and my anxiety and my passion and my fears are all caught up in the physical kingdom. The worries of today and the circumstances I'm walking in. And not often enough do I have the eyes to see, man, the Lord of heaven and earth just walked in the room. <laughs> and I let him go to the temple alone to look around by himself. And he's going, y'all know where we're supposed to be, right? I mean, I was lost there once. From my parents in my father's house. That's where we're supposed to meet up. My father's house. Where are you all at? 
It's too late for them. They'd gone home. They're tired from waving branches. I don't know what, I don't know, right? Like, so just I beg of you, as you think about this passage, as you think about your life, as you consider the day ahead, what kingdom, what kingdom? Jesus died on a cross to take your sin that you might be the temple of the Holy Spirit, that his presence would be carried within you in every place you go. The people are crying out for a kingdom of this world. And Jesus is saying, ah, I've been preaching for three years. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in me. So just challenge our hearts. Man, take stock of what God has called you to do. Don't waste the life that's ahead of you. It, I mean, we all know how fragile it is. And so often we're just numbed by doing what's right for our little kingdom instead of keeping our eyes on what God's kingdom is supposed to be. And please don't hear judgment in my words upon you because I'm speaking to myself. Woe is me. I want my eyes to be 100% on what God's kingdom wants for us. So the first question is, what kingdom are you looking for? Are you looking for a kingdom of five days work, two days off on the weekend, retire at 65, do nothing for 20 years, die. And that's the American kingdom, right? I mean, isn't that the American kingdom? Make it as comfortable as possible, all that stuff. Or are you looking for the kingdom that says, eternity with Jesus starts today. Like it started when I was saved. I'm, I'm in his presence. Today and forevermore, I'm serving the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so I got to take stock of my life and go, Lord, You've given me this ability and that ability and that resource. How would you want me to put this forward? I know that can sound heavy and spiritual and... Uh, I don't know, lofty, hard. I, I'm not sure how to describe that. But let me just challenge you that it's way more simple than your mind is making it out to be. Because God wants to start with where you're at. Okay? Remember last week, the one who saw what's actually happening is the one who was blind. The blind man Bartimaeus is the one that cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's the only one in the whole crowd that actually knew that, that the Lord's authority had authority to open his eyes. No one else knew that. They were just there for the show. So I challenge you, he wants to start with you right where you're at. And he's brought you to this moment for such a time as this. And Jesus, is a, he, he knows how you feel, okay? Because the second question you got to ask is, are you ready for what he's prepared you to do? Because I guarantee while Jesus is thinking about the grandeur and, and power of what the temple is supposed to represent and how much it's lacking from that, he's also in this moment looking forward to the seven days ahead and knowing exactly what's about to go down. He knows what he has to do the next day, and it's 
fun. We'll talk about that next week. But as you look ahead, are you looking ahead with the eyes of Christ? Because the eyes of Christ, as he looked forward to his week, said, at the end of this week, on my agenda, <laughs> okay, like, think about the Lord's weekly agenda for Passover week, the final week of his life. He's like, well, let's see, good Thursday, let's see, Thursday, Monday, Thursday, I'll be in a garden weeping tears of blood. And then the next day, they'll take me away to crucify me. And then I'll be in a grave for three days until I rise on. Like, he literally knew that was what his week was going to look like. So, if you get into the headspace of Jesus while he's sitting in the temple thinking about the week that's ahead of him, it wasn't pretty. All right? What is God going to ask you to lay down? Because God asked his son to lay down his life. Are we prepared for what he has prepared us to do? And so often I'm not. Lord God, Dad, we want to rest in your everlasting arms. We don't want to take more than six steps without acknowledging that this journey is yours. God, I have no clue what you're doing this year. No idea. Wish I knew. I don't. But I can stand here in confidence because you know. And God, the only thing I want to wrestle with in my heart is which kingdom do I serve? Do I serve a kingdom that's worried about the outside of the cup? Or do I serve a kingdom that cares about the restoration of the soul. God, I pray that you would give us eyes and hearts to walk as a people that just is covered by your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your gentleness and your patience God I pray you would help us to look around at each other and steward each other's hearts with care and comfort God, help us lay down our lives lay down our pride and humbly come kneeling before your cross in repentance and belief
Lord, we thank you that you start with us where we're at. Each of us, God, you care so perfectly for where we're at. You know our hearts exactly, precisely, our hearts. You know them full well. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your conviction in our hearts that tells us when we're right with you and when we're not, when we need to come kneeling before you, and when we can stand in praise. You didn't have to come to us, but you came. Humbly, you came. As a baby, you came. And to the cross, you came. And so, God, I pray that, that we would be eternally marked by what you saw in the temple, by what you knew of the true kingdom of God and what you laid down for the glory of your Father in heaven. And Lord, I pray you'd shape our days accordingly. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.